in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. These are the stories of the Word becoming flesh, of God entering into our world. The stories of the men and the women who beheld the birth of a fragile human life. Born into a world of injustice, oppression, corruption, violence, and confusion. But the birth of a king who would cause shepherds, family, followers, and kings alike to confess. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Well, everyone, welcome on this second Sunday of Advent. And Advent is a time of waiting, and we know about waiting, don't we? But Advent is also a time of preparation. And despite COVID, we are preparing. We are writing our Christmas letters and sending them out. We are purchasing or setting up our Christmas trees, preparing our homes, uh, getting them decorated. We are preparing. But this time of Advent, we prepare even more deeply. We prepare for the arrival, the fresh arrival of God in Jesus Christ. And the prophet Isaiah invites us to this preparation. Prepare the way of the Lord, Isaiah says. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. We come now to the second candle of Advent, which is a candle of faith. And we trust, we have faith, that God is with us, and that God comes to us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we are grateful that we do not wait alone, that you are present to us as you said you would be. We pray now that you would lift up our hearts, that you would help us to clear away the clutter, and that you would help us make space for you afresh in this season. In your name we pray. Amen. If you're just joining us, uh, today we are in the second of our sermon series messages on Messiah. And last week, Daniel Susanbach did a marvelous job kicking off the series, helping us to look at our Messiah's messy family lineage, his genealogy. And Daniel highlighted a number of things. But the takeaway for me was that the Messiah's genealogy is indeed messy. And as you look back at all those people that were related to Jesus in the Old Testament, there was a history of seduction and adultery, prostitution, conspiracy, idolatry, wickedness. It was messy. That was Jesus' family. And some of us can identify, for our families are messy too. And the good news at Advent is Jesus is right there with us, right in the middle of the mess. Well, all this sort of lineage leads us to Jesus' stepfather, Joseph. And today we're going to look at the messiness and the scandal related to Joseph. 
And we're going to see some very practical lessons that Joseph has for us. So let me invite you to our text. We're looking at Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. We're going to put it up, and I'm going to comment on it as I go. So here we go. Matthew writes, this is how the birth, as Daniel highlighted, the word Genesis here is used for birth. This is how the Genesis, a new creation actually in Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. It was a two-step betrothal engagement process. Uh, And typically this was done for uh, Jewish girls who were about 12 or 13 years old. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, before they consummated the marriage, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. The NIV has taken a little liberty here, honestly. It's just simply the word because Joseph was righteous. Because Joseph, her husband, was righteous and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace He hadn't mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David. So interesting to me that uh, in Matthew's gospel, son of David is typically applied to Jesus, but here is the only time it's applied to someone else, and it's the adoptive father, the one who will give his uh, lineage and title of son of David to his son, Jesus. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Isn't that interesting? Uh, Angels, that's a thing they always say in the Old and New Testament. Do not be afraid. You can imagine seeing an angel would make you afraid. Do not be afraid, he says, to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. In Hebrew, Yeshua, Yahweh saves. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill. Now, Matthew's all about fulfillment in his gospel. He wants to show how Jesus fulfills all the promises and all the themes and aspirations of the Old Testament. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And this is Isaiah again from chapter 7, verse 14, quote, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, by the way, I didn't mention this, but it's so interesting to me that the other Joseph we know about in our Bible is the Old Testament Joseph, and he is also a dreamer. Remember, his dreams were what saved the people of Egypt and also the people of Israel who were there. When Joseph, the dreamer, woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. That's our text. Let's pray together, and we will apply it to our lives. Lord, thanks for your ancient word. May it have fresh relevance, we pray, today as we examine it. Let your Holy Spirit be our teacher and our guide. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When you think of Joseph, what do you think about? When you think of Joseph, what do you think? I tend to think of him a little bit like he's depicted in this next picture, our olive wood nativity in our home. It's from Bethlehem. 
And if you look closely, I've circled Joseph there. You can see that he's kind of uh, one or two steps removed from the action. The action centers around Jesus, and Joseph is off in the background. He's kind of quiet and removed and uh, not a center stage. This is typically how Joseph has been depicted in artwork throughout the history of the Christian church. Take a look at this next picture. This is a Dutch painter from 1510 named Gerard David. And if you look on the left-hand side, you can see Joseph in red. Again, kind of in semi-darkness. He holds a candle, so there's a little bit of light, but you can see the focus is on the baby Jesus and the illumination of Mary's face. So Joseph is in the background, a bit player, if you will. This next picture is also another Dutch painter, Garrett van Honthorst, a little bit later uh, after Gerard David. But same thing, look, there's Joseph again in the background, in semi-darkness, easy to overlook him because of the illumination of the Christ child and Mary. Joseph, we also know from this next picture, was typically depicted as an older person, in fact, much older than Mary. Uh, This, we think, is possibly why Joseph never really shows up uh, beyond the scene in the Gospels. He may have died sometime later on in the life of Jesus before he was an adult. But here, look how old Joseph looks. Joseph is older, he's in the background, he's uh, a little bit removed from the action. But nevertheless, Joseph continues on in artwork into the modern period. This is another shot of Joseph, if you will. Virginia Wieringa reminding us that Joseph is the patron saint of workers. You can see him holding a measuring device there. He's a carpenter, after all. And then in this final last shot of Joseph, where we've got Father Mickey McGrath, the Roman Catholic priest and painter, reminding us that Joseph is also the patron of fathers. So if you're a father or an expectant father, Joseph is your man. The point is, Joseph has a supporting role in art and perhaps even in our text. He's older, he's removed, he's quiet, he's in the background. And yet, he still has an important place in Christian history. In fact, Joseph is venerated as a saint, and his saint's day is March 19th. That's the feast day of St. Joseph. And St. Joseph is the patron saint of cities named San Jose. San Jose, California. San Jose, Costa Rica. That's Joseph. But nevertheless, for us Protestants, Joseph is kind of off into the side, into the shadows. He's easy to overlook. He's a little bit like this next picture that I found on the internet, uh, a picture of a nativity where Joseph has been simply removed. And you begin to wonder, well, is he really that essential to the story? Wouldn't it be easy to overlook him entirely? But you know, it would be a great loss to do this, a great loss to overlook Joseph because Joseph is a great example to us. And so what I wanted to do today is offer three short sketches of Joseph for us to think about his legacy for us today. The first of these lessons is what I'm going to call Gentleman Joseph. Gentleman Joseph. Joseph teaches us a humble righteousness. It's a righteousness that is tempered with mercy. I like that text in verse 19 where it said, but Joseph, being a righteous man, did not want to subject or expose Mary to public disgrace. He was righteous, but he was merciful. This is gentleman Joseph. And you know, righteousness is a big theme 
in Matthew's gospel. Remember, again, Matthew is a gospel writer who writes to a Jewish Christian audience. And so he's very intent on sort of showing how Jesus fulfills all the promises of Judaism, of of the Hebrew tradition. And one of these, of course, is righteousness. Tzedakah in Hebrew. Jews are all about wanting to be righteous. And so is Jesus. Jesus in Matthew's gospel shows us righteousness, but it's different than people thought. Jesus, after all, said in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness exceeds, goes beyond that of the scribes and the Pharisees, in other words, the righteous elite of Judaism in Jesus' day, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. And then recall later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Righteousness is key, and it should be, because if you remember, righteousness was how God made us from the beginning. I like to think of righteousness as right relatedness or right relationships. Right relationships, and you know God created us, we know from the book of Genesis, with four main relationships which were meant to ground us and characterize our lives. Number one, right relatedness to God, our creator, our maker, our father. Number two, right relatedness to our fellow human beings. Number three, a right relationship, relatedness to ourselves within. And then finally, number four, a right relatedness to the created order, the creation, the earth, the environment. And we know furthermore from the book of Genesis that given the freedom to choose these things and to choose God primarily, we abused our freedom and we sinned and broke all four main relationships. And the chaos of our lives, the chaos of our world is a result of this. And what God is doing in the Bible is restoring all four relationships. God wants right relatedness in all four dimensions. And this is what God is doing supremely in Jesus Christ. And Jesus not only shows us this, but Joseph foreshadows it. Righteousness is not about rule-keeping. Righteousness is not about ticking the boxes of religious requirements. Righteousness is about a relatedness of love and mercy, and Joseph shows us this. True righteousness follows God's word with humility and kindness, not an arrogance or a self-righteousness, not a sort of priggishness and a holier-than-thou type of behavior. Too many religious people are that way. No, true righteousness is not about rigid rule-keeping or smug self-righteousness. True righteousness is gentle and kind, like Joseph was even when he didn't know the full story about Mary. He wanted to treat her with dignity and respect. True righteousness is gentle and kind and compassionate. How does Joseph's righteousness inspire you? How does it challenge you? You know, too many of our, especially more conservative churches, are about rules and regulations. And maybe you've been raised this way. Maybe you're this way today. Maybe I am. Joseph challenges us. He calls us not to be about rigid rule-keeping, but about relational love. Gentlemen, Joseph. That's our first vignette, our first sketch. Let's go on to a second one, and that's obedient Joseph. 
Joseph hears God's word through the angel and he acts on it. He obeys it. He believes that it's true and then he acts on it. And obedience and faith go together. Joseph teaches us that. And I think that's incredible, don't you? Because think about it. If Joseph had not acted on what the angel had said, we wouldn't even be here today. You wouldn't have the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. The story wouldn't have gone on. It wouldn't have unfolded. Joseph hears the word and acts on it, and history has never been the same since. It's a pivotal moment. I like what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the late German martyr killed by the Nazis at the end of World War II, said in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He said this about faith and obedience. Listen to this or look, watch it. Faith is only real when there is obedience, never without it. And faith only becomes faith in the act of obedience. I hear from some people from time to time who will say something like this to me. They'll say, you know, I'm just not a person of faith. I can't bring myself to believe. Sorry. And I want to say to them, oh, I think you do believe. I think you do have faith. In fact, I think everyone has faith in in something. Think for a minute when you get onto a plane, an airplane. You have faith that that plane has been maintained adequately so that it's safe to get onto and fly. You have faith that there are people in the air traffic control tower monitoring the sky so that you don't crash into another plane. And you have faith, even though you cannot see them, that up in the cockpit, there are trained professionals able to fly that plane safely to your destination. Oh yes, you do have faith. And then I furthermore want to say to people who say they can't sort of muster up the sort of spiritual state of belief, I want to say to them, hey listen, take a 30-day experiment. Read the gospel of Mark, for example, or Matthew, but Mark's shorter. Read Mark, look at Jesus, listen to what he wants, and then do it. Try it out. Test drive it for 30 days and see what happens. The point is faith and obedience, listening to God and then acting on it, these go together. And Joseph is the one who shows us this. He is obedient Joseph who takes God at God's word and acts on it. Friends, never underestimate how God can use your simple act of obedience. Never underestimate this. I want to tell you a story. Uh, I'm not sure how long ago it was, but it was maybe a year or more. Ago, uh, we as church leaders received a letter from a neighbor here near the church, and it was an angry letter. It was a letter uh, of real uh, frustration with us as a church because apparently on Sunday morning, we uh, church members were taking up all the parking spots on the street, and she had nowhere to park, and nor did her visitors or her friends. And she was angry with us. And what we did as church leaders, I remember we gave that letter that email, I think it was, to our women's ministry. And our women in this church, our women's ministry, did a most remarkable thing. They made a gift basket for this woman. They went over to her house, and they made peace with her. It was a simple act of obedience. I'm sure it wasn't easy. But they did this, and here's what happened. Just a few days ago, we church leaders received another communication from this very same woman. She was asking us as a church, Is there a family in need 
that you can point me to that I can help. Isn't that something? A simple act of obedience can be incredible under the great sovereign goodness of God. Never underestimate the simple act of obedience. So we have gentleman Joseph, we have quiet Joseph, and, uh, excuse me, we have gentleman Joseph, we have obedient Joseph, and then we do have quiet Joseph. It's very interesting to me that nowhere in the Gospels, nowhere in the Bible does Joseph say a word. He, He really doesn't. He's quiet. He lets his actions do the talking. And as a cyclist, it reminds me a little bit of an interview I read some time ago with a pro cyclist. The media was trying to stir him up in his competition with a competitor and wanting him to sort of brag and say how he was sure to win. And I love what this pro cyclist said. Pro cyclist simply said, I'm going to let my legs do the talking. That's what Joseph does. He lets his legs do the talking. He lets his actions speak louder than his words. That's quiet Joseph. He doesn't say much, but he does significant things, and the world has never been the same since. You know, that's good news for most of us, isn't it? Because most of us aren't going to have a lot of uh, spoken roles in the church. You're not going to be up here preaching or teaching or leading a conference or writing a book even. Most of us are not that way, but never underestimate the simple acts that you can do that God can use as a quiet Christian. I want to take a moment and just laud and praise and admire some of the quiet Christians in this church. You know, I am convinced that when the history of this church is written, we're going to find out that it really wasn't the pastors who made this church great. It was you quiet people. You quiet people who volunteered to hold babies in the nursery on a Sunday morning. You quiet people who stepped it up and taught kids Sunday school. You quiet people who served long and hard as a church officer. Or you quiet people on Thursday mornings in the deacon's closet organize clothing and give them away week in, week out, year after year to bless our homeless and the poor in our community. Or you people who did that Thanksgiving dinner and made all those meals, you quiet ones who may never be known, you're the great ones of this church. And Joseph is your patron saint. In the end, all of us are at best supporting actors in the great drama of God and Jesus Christ. But quiet acts of faithful obedience, these delight God. These uh, are what the church runs on. Okay, I said I was going to give you three portraits. I'm actually going to give you four. But the fourth one is a a literary one. And this is from a special book that I I really recommend. It's called The Book of God by Walter Wongeren, the Bible as a novel. The irony of this is it's actually just as long as the Bible, (laughs) but it reads like a novel. And I want to read you the, the, the portion that Wongeren has about Joseph And I want to warn you that often I tear up when I read this. It just moves me. I'm not sure exactly why, but hopefully you'll appreciate it. This is what Wongren writes. While Joseph was sleeping on his decision to divorce Mary, the voice of an angel called to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, you should not fear to take Mary home as your wife because the infant conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And when she does, you must call his name Jesus, since he will save his people from their sins. 
God is fulfilling prophecies, Joseph. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel, the angel said. Emmanuel, God with us. When the son of Jacob woke up on the following morning, he moved more quickly and more lightly than he ever had in his life. He lit a fire of dry sticks, then burned the bill of divorce in its flames. He washed himself. He brushed and brushed his beard. He oiled his hair. He donned his one clean tunic and his Sabbath robe, then fairly ran to the home of Joachim, Mary's father, and knocked on the door. But there was wailing inside the house, a voice filled with outrage and pain. No one heard Joseph's knocking. The voice was howling. How could you bring such disgrace on? Hearing that, Joseph made a fist and pounded on the door with all his might. Joachim, he bellowed. Joachim, open your door and let me in. The house became very still. No one spoke. No one moved. Joachim, Joseph roared, open this door. Go away. It was Joachim's voice whining piteously. You don't have to finish the roof. Just go away and leave us alone. But Joseph only roared the louder, No, I will not leave until we've set the day for my wedding to your daughter. And you're right. I don't have to finish the roof, but I will after we are married. The little house seemed altogether deserted after that. So long did the silence last inside. Then Joachim called softly, Joseph, do you know that Mary is with child? Joseph said, yes, I know. And Mary, my daughter, says that you are not the father. She's right, I'm not the father. The new wooden door on Joachim's house opened a crack. A tiny eye peered out. And you wish to marry her anyway? Yes, I do. Joachim threw open the door and burst into tears. I am overcome with happiness, he cried. I am suffocating in gladness. He spread his arms and moved toward his son-in-law. But Joseph saw only one figure, pale in the interior dark, scarcely visible, as if she were winter's breath on the air. Mary was gazing out at Joseph, hesitating, chewing her bottom lip. Oh, the worry in her features broke Joseph's heart. Joseph couldn't help himself. He ran past Joachim and gathered Mary into his arms and held her tightly to his body. I love you, he whispered in her tender ear. Don't cry. Don't cry. I love you, Mary, and I know who is sleeping in you, and I will love him too. It is well. All is well. I know what God is doing, and I love you. Beautiful. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this quiet figure, Joseph, and for the lessons of his life. Please help us to take these to heart. Help us to apply them so that we might have some of his wonderful example characterizing our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.